What a fitting uh, song as we again turn our attention as we have these past several weeks of Advent on the person uh, of Jesus Christ, particularly that he is Emmanuel, uh, God with us. Jesus Christ is in fact uh, unique. In fact, uh, the Old Testament uh, foretold this. Isaiah 7.14 said, Therefore the Lord will give you a sign. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. And then again in Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7, we read, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. And then the Lord spoke through Micah the prophet these words, Micah 5.2. But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will rule over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. The one foretold in these and other prophecies in the Old Testament was no ordinary person. The unfolding of the biblical revelation makes clear to us that God's anointed one, his chosen one, the Messiah, Savior was none other than God himself come in human form. This came in time and in history at God's uh, appointed time. And in Matthew chapter 1 and verse 18 through 25, we have the Lord giving reassurance to Joseph, uh, who was a man in Nazareth who was uh, engaged to a a young woman named Mary. She was found to be with child of the Holy Spirit, the scripture tells us. Joseph was troubled by this, and the text tells us in verse uh, 21, she will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet, the very passage from Isaiah that we read, the sign that was given, Isaiah 7, 14. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, since he was dreaming and God was appearing to him in this dream, he did what the angel of the Lord commanded him and took Mary home as his wife, But he had no union with her until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name 
Jesus. You'll notice in this passage in verse 20 that he is conceived by the Holy Spirit. Verse 21 reminds us of the fact that he is, in fact, a Savior, the Savior. When the angels appeared uh, to the shepherds when Jesus was born, they said in Luke chapter 2 and verse 11, For to you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And as I've already mentioned, this was in fulfillment of God's plan that was prophesied and recorded in the Old Testament scriptures through uh, the prophets. John chapter 1 verse 14 tells us of the incarnation, the word God becoming flesh in the person uh, of Jesus Christ. We've considered that uh, over these past uh, several weeks and have seen that the scripture is clear that Jesus is fully God and fully man. He is 100% God and 100% man. And here's where it becomes difficult, I think, for us. It's at one and the same time. Jesus is unique in his being in that he is the God-man. G. Campbell Morgan made this statement. He was the God-man, not God dwelling in a man. Of such there have been many. Not a man deified. Of such there have been none save in the midst of pagan systems of thought. But God and man combining in one personality the two natures, a perpetual enigma and mystery, baffling the possibility of even explanation. In fact, uh, his calling this a, a mystery is not unique to him. In fact, the scripture tells us this very same thing in 1 Timothy 3 and verse 16. Beyond all question, the mystery of godliness is great. He, referring to God, appeared in a body. Paul goes on to say, was, he was vindicated by the Spirit, was seen by angels, was preached among the nations, was believed on in the world, and was taken up into glory. Scripture calls this uh, a mystery. It is something that is revealed, yet in one sense is not fully known. And the wonder and awe of the birth of Jesus Christ is this, that he, being God, took on flesh, which is humanity, and yet he remained God at the same time. There's a theological definition that tries to uh, explain this for us, uh, and I don't want us to get lost in the terms, but I do want to say a word about this theologically. Um, theologians have used the term the hypostatic union to try and describe this uh, concept of Christ being both God and man at the same time. In fact, uh, the Church uh, Council of Chalcedon in 451 uh, is the council that uh, actually uh, 
affirmed this truth. Uh, and part of the statement that the church made as they came together to try and uh, finalize uh, their understanding of the person of Jesus Christ according to the scripture uh, said this, that Jesus Christ is the only begotten, recognized uh, with two natures, without confusion, without change, without division, and without separation. The distinction of natures being in no way annulled by the union, but rather the characteristics of each nature being preserved and coming together into form one person and substance, not as parted or separated into two persons, but one and the same Son and only begotten God, the Word, the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, it's this, if I can put it in more of a, a simplified term, it's not like the, the human nature of Jesus represented by the color of blue and his divine nature represented by the color of yellow were brought together to form the color green. Jesus is the God-man, which means blue and yellow at one and the same time. Now, that's a hard concept for us uh, as human beings to, to understand. Uh, scripture would certainly uh, bear this out, that the two natures are united in the one divine person. And as this Chalcedonian uh, statement that was made many years ago puts it, the characteristics of each nature are preserved in no way annulled by the union as they come together in one person and one uh, substance. That's a lot to take in, but the simplified way of understanding this is that Jesus is the God-man. The God-man. Some might say, do we really need to know this? Uh, isn't this a matter for theologians and scholars to study and, and to try and resolve and, and sort of uh, make sense out of this? May I say that this truth is fundamental to our salvation and a correct understanding of the Bible. It is a matter of faith based on the word of God for all who claim Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. For this reason, he had to be God to be our Savior. For no mere human being, even a sinless one, could meet the eternal demands of God's righteousness and law and his judgments on behalf of all sinful humanity. He also had to be truly human, a man, to be a legitimate substitute who could die in the place of sinners, bearing their sin and their penalty. Thus, Jesus Christ is rightly understood, again, to be the God-man. And one of the main texts that uh, I would like for us to look at just for a few moments together is found from, in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. It was the responsive reading that we had uh, this morning. It's kind of interesting that beginning at verse 6 through verse 11, many scholars believe that this was actually an early hymn or confession of faith uh, in those beginning days uh, of the church. 
It's certainly the inspired part of Scripture that we uh, affirm and hold to be truth and what God has made known to us. But notice what this passage tells us in verse 6 concerning Jesus Christ, who being in very nature God. Here's the divine commentary on the person of Jesus Christ. His very nature, his very being, his very essence is God. And Paul continues on, who did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. Uh, that, that means that, that Jesus wasn't reaching out for, for deity. He already had it. He was God in his essence, in his being. In fact, Scripture uh, teaches uh, that Jesus is, in fact, equal with God. John chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, reading about the Word, we saw that uh, several weeks back. Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 3, he's the exact representation of his nature. John chapter 10 and verse 30, Jesus declared, I and the Father are one. And then in Colossians chapter 1 and verse 15, we read these, these words. He is the image of the invisible God. And then again in verse 19, for God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. Chapter 2 and verse 9 of Colossians, for in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. Once again, the scriptures affirm to us that Jesus is, in fact, God. But notice this. His very nature being God, there's something that, that, that happened. Verse 7, but he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. Here was God, as Paul declares it, who became man. He didn't cease to be God, but he took upon himself humanity. And, and Jesus, who was the highest, descended to the lowest and is now exalted to the highest, according to this passage. And notice this, he made himself. He, he took upon this, if, if I could put it in these terms, this mission, this purpose of the Father, willingly. He made himself. Notice, a servant. He was the king, the king over all, and he became a servant. And you have here, being found in appearance as a man, he became obedient to the point of death. He wasn't just willing to obey the Father to the point of death to obey him, but even death on the cross. To die on a cross as a criminal, the most horrific way to die in that, that day. The highest descended to the lowest and is now exalted to the highest. And notice verses 9 through 11 indicate that he is exalted to the highest place and given the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth 
and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He's exalted by the Father in his resurrection. Christ not only died and was buried, but he was raised again on the third day, and the Father raised him to life. As an amen, as a way of saying what my son has accomplished in providing salvation is acceptable to me. He exalted him in resurrection. He also exalted him in ascension in that he was received back up into heaven, Acts chapter 1. And he's also exalted by the Father in his enthronement in that he sits at the Father's right hand awaiting the day that all his enemies will be put under his feet. And that is where he is today, presently, at the Father's right hand as our great high priest and intercessor. But he's also exalted in that he will come again where the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and forever and forever, and the hallelujah chorus will be sang by all of creation. You know, this can be summed up, this passage, by three symbols, if you want to think of it in these terms. The cradle, he became man. The cross, that's where he died. And then the crown, his exaltation. But why did he do this? What, what was God's purpose in all this? I think that there are, there's a twofold purpose in Christ the God-man. Number one, it was for our good. And number two, it was for God's glory. For our good. Paul says it this way, 1 Timothy 1.15. Here is a trustworthy statement that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Aren't you glad that God provided a way for you to be saved? And he didn't just provide you any way. He himself is that way of salvation. And God asks of us faith. Faith in Jesus for who he is, the God-man, and what he did to bring us to God. He died on the cross for our sins. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18 says this, For Christ died for our sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. See, the Bible tells us and makes known to us, because I don't think that we as humanity would figure this out on our own, that it's our sins that separate us from God who is infinitely and perfectly holy. All of us are sinners by nature as we are born into this world, and it demands God's uh, judgment. The scriptures also go on to indicate that really there's nothing that you and I on our own can do about this. There's nothing we could do about it on our own. We don't have the capacity in ourselves to, to remedy that. I know that there have been attempts in human history to do that. Maybe if we just do enough good things, they'll outweigh the bad, and God will sort of grade on a curve and sort of let us in on that basis. But the problem is we can never do enough good, if that's even possible, because we have the debt of sin 
The Lord told our first parents, Adam and Eve, that the day that you eat of the tree, you'll surely die. The wages of sin is death. It deserves the judgment of God. And the one commandment that they were given, they broke, and they became sinners and passed that sinfulness on to me and to you and to all of humanity, and that's why our world is in the mess that it's in. See, the world tries to, to fix it from the exterior. God said there's a problem interior. It's the heart that needs to be transformed and changed and made new. But we can't do that ourselves. Turning over a new leaf won't happen. Probably every one of you, in some measure, will make a New Year's resolution that by February you will have forgotten about or broken. And why can't you follow through? Because you don't have the capacity in yourself to change yourself. But God in Jesus Christ can change you and make you a new creation that's acceptable to the Father. And failure to address this by any one of us will result in God's eternal judgment. See, people don't like to think about eternity, and so they come up with all these different uh, reasons of explaining what happens to a person when they die. Well, you just go into nothingness, or maybe you become part of some kind of cosmic consciousness, or maybe you come back in the form of, of some other person or other being. You know, or if you, were a good, if you weren't a good person, maybe next time you'll come back as something lower than a human being. And then you sort of work your way through into this reincarnation until you get to a point where you've sort of arrived into godhood. That's not a biblical teaching. But you see, God in Christ provides for our salvation. He has by coming into this world to be our Savior and to be our Lord. And when Christ came into this world, he lived a perfect, sinless, holy life. And he was willing to live that life before all humanity for that three plus years to show that he was indeed perfect. And he was willing, according to the Father's plan, to go to a cross and assume the sins of the world as the Lamb of God. And when he died on that cross, God poured out his righteous, holy indignation against every sin of humanity on Christ. And he died in our place. He's our substitute. He's a sacrifice. And he was buried because the wages of sin is death. He actually died. But that wasn't the end of the story. As I've already mentioned, on the third day he arose again. Up from the grave he arose. And he's alive forevermore. And each one of us must respond individually to respond to God's offer of salvation in Jesus Christ. Let me ask you this question. Have you acknowledged your sin? Have you received Jesus Christ by faith? John tells us, as many as received him, to them who believe in his name, he gives the right to become the children of God. Have you given your life to him? Have you received God's gift of his son, the God-man, Jesus Christ? This is for our eternal good. It's for our good that we trust Christ and we follow him. And you know, I thought of this, you really can't celebrate Christmas without Christ. Because all you have left is mass. A mess, really. <laughs> Christ is the whole purpose of celebrating Christmas. But secondly, 
and probably more importantly, though it is for our good, it's for God's glory. Because God's glory is revealed in saving sinners through the work of Jesus Christ. And ultimately, by the world acknowledging that Jesus Christ is Lord. In verses 9 through 11, we've already seen that. That there's coming a day where every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So those who ignore Jesus, curse Jesus, reject Jesus, one day they will be in a place and in a position where they will have to acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord. That doesn't mean that they will be saved. Some people read that passage and say, well, this just means ultimately everybody is going to be saved. No, it won't. They will just be brought to a place where they have to acknowledge that God is true and everybody else is a liar. That God alone is truth and his way is is through Christ and that is the true true way to salvation and to, to know God himself. And it will be to the glory of God. And you know, the fullness of Christ's exaltation awaits a future day. We sang as part of our worship this morning the hymn, Joy to the World, uh, the Lord is Come. Uh, Did you know that originally when this hymn was written by Isaac Watts uh, in uh, 1719, that the title of it was originally The Messiah's Coming and Kingdom. It was was given as a hymn that exalts the salvation that began when God became incarnate as the babe in Bethlehem, who was also destined to remove the curse of Adam's fall. And this would be finally realized when he came in his kingdom and in his fullness. That's not to say that we can't sing it at Christmas time, because I do think it's fully appropriate, but it's actually looking forward to the day in which let earth receive her king. Let every voice acknowledge that he is God, that he is Lord. And believers, we exalt Jesus Christ by singing his praises whether it's joy to the world, whether it's any of the hymns that we sing at Christmas, or all the music that we offer to God through Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. We exalt Jesus Christ by singing his praises. We exalt him also by way of application, by confessing him as our Savior and as our Lord We exalt him by living for him daily, and we exalt him by making him known. You'll recall that, and it's on our screen from time to time uh, each Sunday, that our purpose is to know and experience the living God through Jesus Christ as revealed in the scriptures, and to make Christ known in our community and throughout the world by the power of the Holy Spirit. We exalt Jesus Christ when we make him known. So how will you respond this morning to Jesus, the God-man? He's the Son of God. 
He's the Son of Man. He is deity, and he is humanity. Uh, I'm going to ask the ushers, I think they're ready to do this, to come at this time. They're not receiving an offering. They're coming to give you something. (laughs) And the something they want to give you is this little ornament that looks like this. And what I'd like you to do is for everyone to take one of these ornaments. On the back side of it is the church and the date. But I want you to take that with you. And I want you to answer this question. You don't have to do it right this moment, but take it with you. What are you giving to Jesus this Christmas? See, we we give gifts to one another, and we receive God's gift to us in Jesus Christ. But what are you giving to Jesus this Christmas? Maybe, and here are some suggestions that you can ponder and think about. Maybe it's the full surrender of your life. Maybe you haven't fully given yourself to Jesus Christ. You're a believer, but you're really not following him fully. Secondly, maybe you would give an offer to the Lord the gift of your time. Time is one of those uh, precious things that we have that uh, is very limited. And in the busyness of our present day, uh, we don't always give the Lord time. In fact, uh, I don't know, I don't have my keys with me. Years ago, we had a men's gathering at Edinburgh Camp. And I remember the man that uh, brought the the devotional uh, gave us each a a washer that we could put on our, our key ring. And he says, you know what a washer does? A washer provides a a space, and his application uh, to us was, how much space are you giving to Jesus in your daily life? And I have that on my keys, and every time I take my keys, and I'm thinking about that, how much time am I really focused on Christ this day? Maybe in this new year, you're giving yourself to Christ and giving him uh, your time. Maybe your gift to Jesus this year is the surrendering of your will. That you're seeking God for your present day, for your future, to know what he wants of you in coming days. And you're saying, Lord, I'm surrendered to whatever your will might be for me. Maybe it's a deeper fellowship with Christ. Maybe you've uh, just sort of become complacent in your walk with God. Maybe uh, you sense that uh, you need to know him better. And so you're going to give yourself to a deeper fellowship with him. Maybe it's a greater witness that you want to use the Lord, want the Lord to use you in a greater measure to be a witness for him. Maybe it's serving him where you are. See, sometimes we we, we always think that God has something out there for me to do. Well, maybe you are where you are in your life and in, in your present position or place because God wants you to serve him right where you are. Maybe your desire is uh, you're seeking him for greater usefulness as a follower of Christ. Or maybe growth in Christ-like conduct, which means your words and your actions reflect Jesus. And maybe it's something simple yet profound, but it's asking God for greater faith just to trust him more. What will you give Jesus this year, the God-man who came into this world to save you and to make you his very own.
Jesus Christ is worthy of our worship. He's worthy of our praise. He's worthy of our celebrating him in every way. Shall we pray? Father, thank you this morning for your presence with us, for this time together in your word. Lord, we do give you our thanks and our worship and our praise, and we thank you for Jesus Christ, the Son of God who came into this world, who took upon himself flesh and blood, who assumed humanity, and who offered up his perfect life for us and for our salvation. Father, we rejoice and we exalt in your Son, Jesus Christ. And we pray, Father, that as we think about and pray before you concerning how we can give ourselves to you and what we should give to you, Lord, may that be prompted by your Holy Spirit in each of us that we might be fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ in greater measure today and in the days to come. And we pray that the result would be, Lord, that we would experience your work in our lives for our good and ultimately for your glory. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.